it's taken social media to really cause this transition to that new model of agency now where agents can earn six figures a year. Damien, my business partner, he'll probably take home this year half a million pounds personal income as an estate agent. Mr. Tyler Newman is absolute weapon of an entrepreneur himself. One of the youngest property developers, a property entrepreneur, a property mogul. People spend all of this effort making the property look incredibly attractive, but then they won't do the same thing for themselves. Do you think it's possible for me to be 21, got a bit of money, and to say, I've got some mud? I'm going to build stuff. Or should I buy some houses, do some flips, do some refurbs, and then do development? Now, this is key. To get the best price for a property, it all comes down to achieving one thing, which is achieving... Hey everyone, welcome back to the TED Talks podcast. Now you're here with me in London, in not a sunny London, but a standard overcast grey London with someone who I've been meaning to get on the podcast for quite a while, I think. We just, it just hasn't happened, you know, you've been too busy jet setting in Dubai and all these places and I've just been at home, frankly. So, uh, Tyler, welcome to the TED Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. You know, I'm, I'm quite uh, honoured, I think, to be in the pad because, you know, I see it on Instagram, I see the weekend in the background. When I walked in, he was playing and I thought, you know, this is like a spiritual journey for me. You know, I was, I was texting Shaz earlier, we both follow your stories. And I was like, I'm going, I'm going to the pad today. And he was jealous. So um, shout out to Shaz for that as well. Shout out to Shaz. Shout out to him. Now, before we get into lots of different topics, and one is actually why you live here mm-hmm. and about this view that's behind us and behind you, because it's not... It's not too evident from your profile, mm-hmm. maybe the number of businesses you're involved with or the scope of what you do. I think there's a few hints. There's a few little, we're doing a big development in Cambridge, but what do you actually do? Well, that's probably an indication that I need to be better at promoting <laughs> and, and marketing myself. But um, very simply, three different businesses or three different entities, which I consider part of one ecosystem, if you like, they're all in the kind of the property space. So. First business is Newman Rose, which is our investment development company. That's with my business partner, Rosie Cassidy. Um, For those that kind of know Rosie, family background of development since, you know, before she could speak English, every conversation at uh, the dinner table, I say speak English, learn the English language as a baby, everything she's ever um, known and grown up in has been development. So We've had that company for a while now. We've got a number of developments we're working on. Then got an estate agency business called Luxury Property Partners, which actually this week is a year old. Congratulations. Um, I'm sure we might get into this, but Mm -hmm. I grew up in the estate agency world. That's where I got my first start. And then also third business is Property Ed um, or propertyeducation.co.uk. And we kind of do coaching um, for those that are looking to transition into property development. Maybe they're a contractor that knows how to build a house but doesn't know how to find the land to build the house on and raise the money to fund the process. Um, Or kind of existing property investors that want to get to the next level, um, amongst some other bits as well. So they're the main three, and the only three, to be fair. And and those three things are quite, Mm -hmm. I would say quite advanced, at least for people listening who maybe aren't in business, don't have any property experience, they're thinking... He's doing luxury real estate and he's doing developments, which is top of the sort of property triangle, the hardest, the most expensive, arguably the most rewarding. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned their estate agency background. I understand your dad had has an estate agency. So what influence did he play on you growing up? Because a lot of people have influences. Yeah. They don't necessarily follow them. I, I had um, one thing I'm very vocal about this, extremely grateful for, is I had kind of amazing influence growing up. I think I had that perfect mix of 
you know, I never went without, but I was never, you know, my parents made a conscious choice never to spoil me or, you know, because, you know, we can see what happens there when, when kids are spoiled from an early age. But the one thing that I did have was, um, you know, I was taught great values and, and character traits, you know, that you can achieve things in life that there is no such word as can't and um, amongst many other things. So um, there was that and it always kind of um, instilled in me this um, desire to kind of chase, you know, my better self and invest in personal development and, and education. And so from as young as I can remember, I was reading Tony Robbins books and um, studying that. So yeah, my, my old man, he has, he hates it when I call him old man because he's, he's not an old man. Um, a state agency, that's what he started out when he was 16, turned that into a successful estate agency business. Uh, was, from what I know, like quite successful prior to me being born. Um, still did well. I mean, like we're talking like a handful of offices in the Midlands and then especially over the last um, five or so years, you know, he's he's really kind of put his foot on the gas trying to grow it. And now I'm in a competing business with my estate agency business. So we're constantly sharing best practice and um, we actually stole a listing off him um, a couple of weeks ago, which I was quite happy about. But yeah, every, everything on the estate agency side, like I learned from, you know, from him and um, being in and around that business. And so it was never my intention to start an estate agency business until kind of stars aligned um, business partner, Damien, who is just a force of nature when it comes to listing and selling property. Cause I, I'm not client facing anymore. Um, but Damien, you know, is a beast. And so when he decided that he wanted to step out of the company, he was working for previously. Yeah. It made sense for us to think, right, let's build this into something big. And did you, you know, as you were growing up, did you work with dad? Was it kind of like you were his little apprentice as you were growing up? No. Um, surprisingly, I learned very little, I'd say close to nothing about property um, until I was 17 and came across a Facebook ad for a free property seminar um, here in London. And that's when I was like, oh, dad, I want to go to this because I decided at that point I wasn't going to university. Did it make sense? Um, for me and started going to these seminars was like forex trading seminars or property seminars property was fortunately the one that that stuck Um, and that's when I was like oh how does a mortgage work like what deposit do you need to put down and that kind of thing but um, but no when I when I left school having been through kind of various property courses and started to learn about how it all works my ambition was to go out kind of buy my first deal, raise a bit of money from investors, save some money up. And I started working for, yeah, one of the, the offices in the family business, but it's um, commission only. So you only eat what you kill. I didn't kill anything for the first six months. Um, yeah. So, um, but then from that, from 12 months, managed to save up um, a bit of change. Um, my first property was like an £8,000 deposit eight and a half thousand pound deposit and yeah that's where it started and then eventually I transitioned out of a state agency and you know going from that first property mm-hmm. which I assume was a standard midlands mid-terrace type by to end, end of t- ooh, end of okay upgrade upgrade two bed yeah two bedroom 800 square foot probably two bedroom end of terrace in dire condition 
yeah. the classic. Mm-hmm. And they make great investments. Mm-hmm. A lot of these little ones adds up and, and gets there. There's pros and cons with it. But you, I would, I would say fairly quickly, moved into developments. Now, if anyone watching developments is... How would you define property development? How is it different from buy-to-lets and flips? Um, I just describe it as kind of building from the ground up or um, conversions from an existing, maybe commercial building into residential, um, where there's kind of multiple units involved. And, you know, that transition is one that I think a lot of people in property want to make. In fact, a lot of them want to go straight to the the top and go straight to development without doing, you know, the baptism of fire, which is the, the kind of smaller stuff. What are your thoughts on that in the sense of, do you think it's possible for me to be... 21, got a bit of money in to say, I'm going to, I've got some mud, I'm going to build stuff. Or should I buy some houses, do some flips, do some refurbs, and then do development? Um, I would say having actually, um, you know, gone through the process myself, but also seen at this point, probably, you know, hundreds of others do it and try to do it through kind of our education business. It's given us a very unique perspective as to kind of who is, best place to kind of get results doing it I mean for me it wasn't a quick process I think it was between doing my first deal and, and getting into developments was probably four close to five years um, but it's an entirely different skill set I would say um, there's a lot of soft skills that can be transferred but um, it is possible for anyone to do it but the level of knowledge and skill that required is extremely advanced people that are well placed to do it are people that are maybe existing contractors that know how to build you've got to have an edge right for some people it's you know the building process for some people it's they know and understand the finance side of things i believe fundamentally at a certain point in property it is a finance business and those that understand the finance side of it and the complexities of structuring debt and equity and raising private capital those are the ones that have the ultimate edge but terms of knowledge like that's when you really need to understand the planning system the procurement um of you know big developments project management having the right team access to capital that kind of thing and so for most people actually it's better to go through that gradual transition of doing some flips maybe some hmos and then getting into the bigger stuff I agree. I think even just the life skills from doing a little two up, two down, doing a HMO, working with builders. Yeah. I know when you're doing developments, you may not be as involved as with a kind of buy to let or a flip. There's project managers and contract managers and different things in, in the way, I suppose. You have a site in Cambridge at the moment, am I right? Yes, we, we own a site in Cambridge or Cambridgeshire. Cambridge it's about, I don't know, uh, 50 minutes from city of Cambridge. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, in a village called Iselin, where we've got planning to build 17 houses, 12 are kind of open market detached, and then there's five affordable. We bought it with outline planning about 18 months ago, and it's just been... And you finished it, right? You made the profit? <laughs> I wish. The The planning process has been horrendous. Um, As I think it is everywhere for everyone all the time. Yeah, and I think it was a combination of us maybe being just naive, um, but also, unfortunately, the council just hasn't cooperated with us as much as we would have liked, Um, especially even right now, being totally transparent, like planning has been approved. You know, we submitted the reserve matters application. We went from outline to getting the full planning. 
But then to actually be able to commence construction, there are various pre-commencement conditions that mm-hmm. need to be discharged, um, all of which are done apart from the drainage strategy, which, lo and behold, the council just don't like any strategy we propose to them. But no, there's always a solution, so we're working towards that. Hopefully we'll be starting construction soon. But the one thing that's probably not spoken enough about developments is one, how much time they take, mm-hmm. and two, how much risk you take on so yes you can make a lot of money it's x amount of time down the line after you've taken on you know debt risk construction risk planning risk which you know is not for the faint-hearted i agree and what what makes it worth it because outline planning okay so the risk is slightly less in the sense that the council have approved something kind of they've said yeah whatever it's still not full planning. And of course, your price premium decreases because of the more, there's more risk in it, or it should, hopefully. What makes it worth it to take all that risk on, to have all this time and still not have a shovel in the ground to actually start building stuff? Uh, well, what makes it worth it is the money at the end. Um, well, hopefully the money at the end. Um, we, we saw an opportunity with this site in particular to add value with the Reserve Matters application because we saw if we could do some value engineering essentially increase the size of the properties the road was far too wide so we could make that a little bit thinner pull the properties in make the gardens a bit bigger um, improve the aesthetic of the design and therefore increasing the gdv which out without increasing the construction costs too much although in the amount of time that it's taken us to do this construction costs have gone up but again that is the risk that you take on um, with this stuff and we're about to go through the process again with some various other sites in the Midlands we've agreed to buy um, but we're just playing the long game and I don't think you know development has you know the potential of significant reward but you have to add up the time cost of money as well because money 18 months away versus money that you could get in three months or six months time you know there's there's money today is worth more than money tomorrow so that's where actually buying maybe smaller deals and more investment properties at cash flowing day one although they might not may not may not make as much money on paper but getting that money in the bank account early without taking on as much risk there's a lot to be said definitely and this is why i don't do development i just i see this playoff and i'm happy with not taking the risk mm-hmm. and the time you need a lot of patience to to deal with the council to process this and i just i just don't have that i would end up the council would just be dead at their desks it would just be me in handcuffs it just it wouldn't end well for anyone so i'll leave it to you um, what is the gdv or gross development value the total value of the site in cambridge once it's built out or what do we think it's going to be based on um, data we're, we're projecting it to be conservatively eight and a half could be nine million depending on if we have some wind behind our sales but property market at the minute is a bit of a not a shambles, but, you know, I'm not hopeful that prices are going up. I think there is, you know, they are correcting. And so, yeah, but also we, we bought this site based on GDVs 18 months ago, two years ago. So, yeah. And, you know, from the moment you, let's say, exchanged on the land mm-hmm. to the point where you think that you're going to have sold everything you need to sell from the site, what sort of time frame do you think that will be when it gets to it? We went into it with the expectation to be two years. I think realistically it's going to be three. And the reward is life-changing and warrants three years, in your opinion? Um, 
life-changing money is different for different people, but the the profit on this will be anywhere from like one to one and a half million quid. Yeah. I think, you know, would most people wait three years and work three years to get that? I think so, compared to at least jobs. But I think, as you've said, there are other ways in three years to maybe make that amount or similar enough yeah. with less stress and less risk. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're you're changing the planning. This is quite common, right? Someone puts in planning just to up the value and they're like, oh, I don't care. You come in as a developer and say, oh, hold on a minute, this is trash. Let me change this. You're adding value there and you're solving a problem and you're doing something different. So with Luxury Property Partners, which you spoke about earlier, your luxury real estate agency, what what problem are you solving? What value are you adding that other people in the market, I'll say some names, Savills, Knight Franks, the old boys, mm-hmm. that they're not adding? Um, so... When it comes to estate agency, there's the traditional model of agency, which is how these businesses are typically typically run. And you've used some examples. If they've got, you know, they've got offices on the high street or here in London, you know, extremely expensive offices within that office. You know, there's a lot of costs that have to be maintained, not just the lease, but the insurances, the cleaning, everything else that comes with running an office. You then got admin staff, which aren't revenue generators, and then you'll typically have maybe one or two that are the, the listers that they'll go out and list and sell the property and then a couple of negotiators that do the viewings and tie it up. But it's an extremely inefficient business model. Um, and we've seen this happen with, if you look at uh, Countrywide is a great example. They were once the biggest group of state agency companies, public on the stock market, worth hundreds of millions. And then you know, over the last, I think it was a couple of years ago, they got bought out by Connells. Their share price was just for five years or so, just a straight decline um it's because these businesses just weren't profitable hard to grow um and the problem with that is also agents in the uk for whatever reason just aren't educated on how to actually get great results for their clients and as a result charge good fees and so actually agents that were going out what they'd be doing when they're kind of quoting fees is trying to compete on price rather than compete on value and when you do that it's just a race to the bottom terms of who can charge the cheapest and then you see purple bricks come into the market you know maybe six seven years ago maybe more where they're like we'll sell your house for 800 pounds and again these agents they don't know how to compete on value so they think the only way to compete with that is like well we'll do it for you know one percent point seven five percent a half a percent a thousand pounds or whatever um but purple bricks really shook up the industry and then as a result you know have this negative flywheel effect where agents are going out now they're charging half a percent to sell a property. When that money eventually comes in six months down the line after they've done the viewing, sold it, it's fallen through twice and the solicitors have finally got it through with the buyer to completion, they've then got to pay for their offices, they've then got to pay for their admin staff. By the time there's anything left to actually pay their agents, it's not much. And so outside of London especially, agents really, their earnings are capped at 40, 50 grand a year. You can earn more than that, but that's when you kind of an area manager and you're running various branches and you know you've been ran into the ground managing people um and so with luxury property partners the way we structure it and this isn't a completely we're not the first ones to do this but um we'd like to think we're doing it better than most is we well one have very low cost space we have zero offices it's very remote and all of our agents are trained to get great results for their clients um and as a result able to command and charge high fees you know i'm 
very open in saying that our agents charge 2.5% plus VAT, which is like 3%. Um, they're worth that. You know, they get great results. All of our transactions up until this point have transacted actually above asking price over the last 12 months. Now, granted, we only deal with high-value property, a million plus, so the volume of transactions isn't huge. Um, but the agents then receive 50% of any income they generate. So very simple math will tell you on a £2 million property, they will generate a £50,000 um, fee, and of that they'll make £25,000 of personal income for selling one property. And you look to US, you look to Australia, they've been operating on this model for, for years, and that's why you've got, you watch Selling Sunset or... Lux listings in Sydney, which I know you're a Lux fan of. Listings. Selling Sunset is now just literally gossip, drama, a yellow Lamborghini Urus and long nails and that's it. But these guys can earn, you know, half a million dollars a year. They're well respected in their industry. And, you know, for so it's taken social media to really come in um, and actually cause this transition to that new model of agency now where agents can earn, you know, six figures a year, you know, Sure, he doesn't mind me saying it, but Damien, my business partner, he'll probably take home this year half a million pounds personal income as an estate agent, which it's crazy, which is unheard of. So yeah, and you know, at the top of my head, I can think of you and maybe two others operating this model. One of them's fairly new. One of them's I don't think too new. So it seems like it's still fairly new, and maybe these old boys and these old companies aren't transitioning to it. Um, are, are people missing something? Um, it's, it's, it is fairly new in the grand scheme of things, but I do think inevitably all of these other agencies would have to transition to this model if they want to keep up, for sure. And what is the... So it, it, you haven't got an office, right? Now, traditionally, and I think this hasn't been the case for a long time, but traditionally people would walk past and walk in and say, Selma, it doesn't happen anymore. Mm. So... And this is it might be an obvious kind of question here, but how do you then get listings? How do you then get business when there's no physical presence? It's a very old school question, but um, yeah, there's uh, a few main ways. Primarily, um, where do we start? So when an agent is coming into the business, starting from a cold start, where they've got you know no contact lists, no network. Um, the low-hanging fruit is door knocking, hitting doors. Actually walking. Actually going up, knocking the door. And, you know, for properties on the market with another agent, that tells me that that is a property where the sellers want to sell their property. That is a hot lead. And if they've been on the market for 12 weeks, 16 weeks, there's, an in, there's you know, a chance that they're unhappy with the performance of their existing agent. So you know, we train our agents. There's, there's a right way to knock a door. There's a wrong way to knock a door. You always want to be leading with value. You don't want to go knock on the door and say, hey, can I sell your house? You want to say, hey, I see you're for sale. Would love to help you kind of find your next onward purchase. Where is it you're looking at moving to? And you want to help them onward purchase. And then by helping them, it opens up the conversation to say, well, look, how are things progressing with the sale of your home? And you know, they might say, great, you know, we're really happy with their agent. But they might also say, you know what, we're a little bit disappointed. We promised the world and the agent hasn't delivered, which happens more often than... Yeah. They're not. So that's an opportunity to then obviously book in an appointment, present to them kind of an actual strategy to get them sold, uh, which we're very big on. Another way is kind of direct mail campaigns. So um, we'll send direct mail to properties on the market, off the market. And then third and foremost, uh, just buyer work. So you know when you get your first listing, if you do an open house, 
and on the open house you've got 20 people viewing that property there's a good chance that probably 75 80 percent of those people viewing it have also got a property to sell and so then they're going to come to this open house they're going to see this amazing result that you've got you've got 20 people viewing it all at the same time after four weeks of marketing you've got music playing you've got canapes you've got champagne you've got you know various scents around the property and um that's a great opportunity to ask them hey look how is the sale of your property going can i come around and discuss our strategy with you um and so then it creates this kind of flywheel effect where the best agents damien another great example all of his listings either come from buyer work or the the other big one is social media and just that is your office that is your storefront in today's day and age I love that. I think and when we spoke about this a while ago, there's three ways. Everything you're doing is new school, mm-hmm. but the three ways of getting business there, apart from the last one, are old school, but yeah. they clearly work because you're doing it, people are doing it. And I think even though they're old school, I think it adds something that is missing, which is looking in someone's eyes, mm-hmm. having a chat, shaking someone's hand, something that social media is incredibly powerful. I'm, I can't take that away. But there is something, and although, yes, it takes hours and hours to door knock whereas this goes out to thousands of people and that's it we're done after an hour mm-hmm. there is something about that that works and social media again massively I, like i said i think i said to you and i keep saying to you his videos are amazing yeah like he has so much character in, in the houses and he actually likes them you know which is nice right yeah. he walked he's telling a story on a team call on on monday this week he because he's in henley and arden and a lot of his social media audience a lot of his ads run to henley and arden he walks down the street there and everyone does. He's got this iconic, hi, I'm Damien yeah, yeah. Mary, and it's my absolute privilege to show you. And he had uh, one or two people do that to him walking down the street. So Already? Yeah. And he hasn't been making videos for that long. No, two years. Yeah. So for that to be happening means that he's reaching the people he needs to reach in his area. And I think it's so important to have people like that you work with, but also a business partner like that. Because yeah. a lot of agents will walk around a house and they'll say that is a chair you know and look at that door but when i walked in i saw this is like quadruple glazed windows i measured the size of them instantly i like i was looking at stuff because i'm passionate and i care about things and you want someone to come in and be like Mm -hmm. a geek for property because how are they going to sell the emotion the vision everything when they don't kind of love it themselves and you know working with someone is tough in any capacity in any business with damien what what brought you together? Um, so, so Damien worked for um, a company um, that operated in kind of high-end market in Oxfordshire. But the way that company was set up is part of that franchise he was a part of. He was restricted on the postcodes that he could list and sell property in. But he was having, you know, lived in the US for eight years, had a super successful construction business out there. Saw in the US that his friends that were agents were doing really, really well you know, I want to do that in the UK, found a model, you know, similar to LPP where he could do it. But as he was getting more and more successful, he'd have people from other areas say, hey, Damien, I've got a five million pound house here. Can you sell it for me? He'd be like, I'd love to, but I can't because my franchise restricts me. And he was getting very, you know, you know, as I turn away all this business, you know, when you've got kids to feed and um, bills to pay. Lamborghini fuel's expensive as yeah, well, premium um, fuel. Yeah, bought himself a Lamborghini, which which isn't cheap, so you can't be turning away business. And so I uh, proposed to him, said, look, let's um, let's do this. Like, I, I want to build a business that's worth something, um, has enterprise value. I've got kind of a, a bigger vision, a bigger master plan for the kind of the, the three businesses and how they're going to grow. 
And he saw the vision, came on board. Like I said, I'm not client facing, so my job is just two things, recruitment and training. I want to recruit the best talent in the industry and I want to train them to be operating at their, their absolute peak. Damien is the kind of, the Ryan Serhant, if you like, the, the golden boy that's going out that's showing us all how it's done. Um, it's definitely a role model within the business. And yeah, we work really, really well together. We're just both extremely ambitious. Damien is one of the hardest workers I know. Like, I wake up at 7 a.m., I'll message him, he'll reply straight away. I'll message him at 11 o'clock at night, he'll reply straight away. Saturday, Sunday. Um, and his clients will tell you the same as well. Um, so, deserves all of the success that he's had and we've got in store. So, yeah, couldn't be more grateful to have such an amazing partner. I love that. And I think something we spoke about maybe a few months ago was that when agents join you, they don't do the admin work? No. Now, I know of agencies and even high street agencies, luxury ones, whatever, where the agents are saying, oh, yeah, Tej, I'm selling houses, but then I've got to go do the paperwork. I've got to go chase that for that. And I actually say to them, yeah. you're too well paid to do that. Yeah. It's kind of like with doctors. When doctors do paperwork, I just think... Time is too valuable. Yeah, your time and your skill is too valuable to be doing that. Mm. So why do you think other agents... Because I can never, it just does not make sense. Why do they operate that model where they don't just have the admin outsourced to a different country or just have a team who do it? Like, why are agents doing that stuff? I just think it's a big mistake people make in business. They don't attach a cost to their time or put a value on their time. And so my one objective with the agents that work under the brand, excuse me, is I want I want them to make as much money as possible. And, and so do they. And so... That means their time is valuable and I want them only doing the high income, the high impact tasks, which is generating new business and prospecting for new business, um, attending listing appointments and you know converting those market appraisals into new listings. And then thirdly, like selling houses, hosting the open houses, doing second viewings, negotiating offers. Everything else is not a good use of their time. And so we wanted to create a system where, and not only that, is you all know this, the personality types that are the best at sales and the best closers and the best hustlers is not the same personality type that are organized, good at admin tasks and good at paperwork. And so, you know, we've got every agent has access to an agent support team, their own kind of executive assistant, which will support five to 10 agents. And then, yeah, they will be able to literally go out, knock on a door, book an enlisting appointment, list a property, and they can say to their agent support, hey, look, here's the address, this is the client's name, can you please get all the paperwork sorted? And that EA will handle the whole process of getting that property live for them and executing upon the marketing strategy that the agents proposed. So it's a really good uh, symbiotic relationship. Uh, it just makes sense. And I think in a lot of businesses, not just real estate, but even our own businesses, there's a lot of things that we do that are not income generating mm -hmm. and are, you know, not in an arrogant way, but below our pay grade. You know, we, we shouldn't be, if we're a CEO, if we're really good at marketing, let's do that. But I don't need to be lead generating. I don't need to be typing up data. I don't need to be doing stuff that yeah. doesn't need this, the skills that I have. So I totally appreciate that they don't do that because it it always bugs me. Every agent I speak to, and it, they always tell me, even, even in other businesses, I just think, you're like you said, you're not putting a cost to your time mm -hmm. and you're not looking at the fact that, oh, okay, you're saving... 
50 quid by not outsourcing that task, right? Because your VA is $10 an hour, whatever. Mm -hmm. But you're losing 500 because your hourly rate is 400. So where your efficiency, where does that come from? I saw a bunch of books over my shoulder here, which it it, it could come from some of them. But what makes you, because not everyone is like this, what makes you so driven for efficiency? Um, It's just a personality type thing, I think. Um, But saying that, it's... I always do like, and you know, you reference the books, a big part of what I want to do is I always want to look at those who are ahead of me, whether they're, you know, a little bit ahead of me or they're decades ahead of me. And it becomes very obvious to me that at a certain point in the size of a business, the business owners or operators are just obsessed with operational efficiency and team and systems. And that's it. That they just got to build the team that can build the business and maximize efficiency. That's it. They're not bothered about too much about the intricacies of this and that. They just want to operational efficiency. Just yeah, have um, and and like Elon is a great example. Like he'll yeah. he'll come into seeing him come into Twitter whether it was six months ago. Just seeing the speed of execution and how quickly he turned around that business to a point where. It's efficient and it's almost a break-even or cash flow positive. It's just a masterclass in how probably inefficient most businesses are run until someone looks at it from a 30,000-foot view and comes in and just makes the changes. Yeah, this is true. And I think like it, it's, again, a traditional thing where someone starts a business, they're an owner-operator, yeah. they run it as we've always done for 20 years, and because now I'm looking at buying businesses, I look through the accounts, I speak to them, I say, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And I just think, I'm going to make 20% more the second I buy this business mm-hmm. just because of who I am. And that, again, that's not cocky. Yeah. That's just, I know certain things. I have no emotion to your baby, this business as you have it. I'm not an owner operator. I want to be the smooth operator, shall we say, at the top. Yeah. You just see it so quickly. And so it's, yeah, it's always good to understand people's kind of motivations or why they do things and how they do things so one thing you mentioned earlier which i suppose is unusual in maybe in the current property market because we're not going up we're not getting some sort of crazy upward like we have been you said you sold most of your listings for above asking and it's a luxury property so they're not it's not like someone paid you five grand extra they're paying a significant amount extra and they're nice properties you know you know sometimes i see luxury listings and i think not luxury. It's exp- it's, this is value versus price. It's expensive, but it's buzz. There's no value there. I just think. Yeah. So how are you selling them above asking? Um, so this comes down to kind of the strategy that we, we execute. So when it comes to getting the best result for the client, which more often than not means getting the best price in you know the most reasonable amount of time, the shortest time. So that's what we're optimizing for. Now, to achieve that result, there's um, that's a function of marketing and it's a function of price. Now, you can have the best marketing in the world, but if the price is wrong, it's not going to sell. And vice versa, you can have you know, a property priced 25% below market value, but if no one knows it's for sale, it's not going to sell. So you really have to get both of those sides right. And the marketing element of that, that is not just taking nice photos, put it on right move and hoping the phone rings. That means making sure it's presented perfectly both in person with staging and also online with the videography and the photography that we use, but then also how that material is then distributed, you know, not just putting it on right move, but 
know, I know if I'm going to list a property for, um, let's say, two million pounds in, um, let's say, um, Radlett in Hertfordshire, I know that there's a good chance a buyer of that property at two million pounds is going to be someone that already lives in a nice property in Radlett in Hertfordshire because most people, they live in a nice place, they want to stay in a nice place. And actually, a lot of the time, um, it could be people that aren't thinking of moving. You ask anyone that's worked in a show home at a new build site, they'll tell you how many people come in nosy and then suddenly they fall in love with the property and they end up moving. And so, you know, we want to send a direct mail campaign to everyone that's on the market for sale within a certain radius and we'll pick a certain price bracket. If someone's buying at 2 million, they're probably not on the market for 200,000, but they might be on the market for 700,000 or a million pounds. They might be downsizing from 5 million. So we'll kind of work with the client. We'll figure out, well, who were you when you bought this property and create these different avatars of potential buyers and then figure out how we can target them. Same with social media. You know, we'll run a paid advertising campaign within that area. So marketing, I mean, I could spend another two hours talking about the strategy there. But then price, um, there's two sides to the price equation. There's the market value and there's the pricing strategy. A lot of agents make the mistake of, they go around and think, oh, I think it's worth 2 million, so we'll put it on the market for 2 million. Or they'll even say, we'll put it on the market for 2.2 million because people want to chip us down. But then, you know, you're pricing it out of the market and it's not going to get the same level of interest. So we establish with the client market value. We look at the evidence. We know market value isn't a specific number because no one knows what that property is worth ultimately. Um, but we'll look at the evidence, we'll establish a range, and then we'll come up with a pricing strategy. Now, this is key. To get the best price for a property, it all comes down to achieving one thing, which is achieving competition amongst buyers and creating this competitive environment. You know, it's one thing finding a buyer that's willing to buy it. It's another thing extracting the highest price out of that buyer. And to do that, I mean, we don't like the word bidding war, and I don't like to use the word bidding war, but you do want to have multiple people competing for the property. If I'm a seller, I want to have multiple people interested. Now, the way to do that is we then think, right, if the market value is 2 million, really, we want to be pricing it on or below market value. I would always push for 15 to 20% below market value. We then do an open house campaign where we do all of the marketing. We do no viewings for four to six weeks. We block all the viewings on a Saturday where the property is beautifully staged. All of the buyers that are at the property, they see there's other interest. So me as the agent, we hold the upper hand in the negotiation because we can say, look, you've seen how much interest there is. And then look, you know, even though we're advertising at, let's say, 1.7, 1.75, and the property's worth 2 million, people will still pay 2 million. They'll completely ignore the asking price because, you know, for people buy with emotion and if they see value and ultimately if a surveyor is willing to you know, put their name to a valuation at that level and a mortgage companies willing to lend the money then so be it and that's how we've sold property that's sat on the market for years with other agents we'll come along do this and then we'll achieve higher than what the original asking price was so that's the short version anyway no i think it's it's so interesting to hear that because a lot of agencies will mm -hmm. put on right move do an open house that's it and they'll do it with the energy that I'm talking because it's so it's so standard and very it, true you know and it's it's so nice to hear that and, and I'm used to I sort of slightly used to this watching Gavin you know on, on like yeah. listings do his like absolute magic and Ryan Sahan as well just amazing and his and their personalities as well is a big big thing that 
I think is, well, it's probably most of their success. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do all the marketing, do all that stuff, but if some, you walk in and someone loves you and someone gets on with you and you have a vibe and you create a vibe in a house, it's the emotion like part that you're talking about. Sure. And this goes down to, you know, back when you were investing in like small houses and people who were doing that. I always say to people, people buy with emotion, make them fall in love with your house. Okay, a black tap costs double the price. Yeah, but when someone walks in and says, oh, I've seen that on Instagram, I saw that in a two million pound house, they're going to want in and they're going to pay you more. And it, it works, it's a fact. Mm-hmm. If things emotionally entice you, you want to spend more time with them or, yeah. or in that environment. And so do you apply the same principles to the people you hire mm-hmm. and the houses you take on? Because like I said about the price versus value of houses, there'll be expensive houses that say, oh, Damon, I want to work with you. Hey, you know, I want to be, and you look at it and think, you need a refurb, mate. What, you know, do you apply it to both those two things as well? Um, when it comes to the personalities of people that we hire, there's a lot of things we look for. The main ones are, we do want people that are competitive, that are money hungry. Mm-hmm. They're just objectively the best salespeople. They've also got to be willing to learn and open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, what we don't want is someone that's stuck in their ways that is opposed to kind of the new way of, say the new way of doing things, different way of doing things uh, that we like to do it. Um, if they're not money hungry, they're not competitive, they're not going to, they're not going to put in the work because ultimately when they're commission only, they are their own business. They are responsible for the income that they make. Um, and not all personality types are suited for that in terms of the property. I mean, I was always in two minds about using the word luxury in the name because you're absolutely right. There is a difference between expensive and luxury. Uh, we take on anything currently a million plus. Mm-hmm. Um, we will be going more mass market in the future through a, um, a separate kind of mass market brand, sister company, if you like, um, revealing a bit of our master plan there. But um, when we do come across a property where, yeah, the, the furnishings are old and run down, we will insist on them staging the property because it is single-handedly the highest return on investment um activity that a client can have and so that will mean you know there's different stages to it that could just mean kind of new bed sheets new pillows um, and decluttering it could mean whole new furniture it could mean painting decorating walls tearing down wallpaper and uh, replastering some areas but where the budget allows we will insist on it and we've got the case studies to back up that excuse me the the return on investment is there i mean mm-hmm. Going back years ago, I sold a property for a developer once. It sat on the market for exactly 365 days. Um, New build, it was a farmhouse that had been converted. It was technically a new build. It had the the certificate. But um, it was a last plot on this site that he tried to sell. And it was just empty. It had no furniture in it, nothing. It was on the market for 650000 for a whole year. Came along, staged it. The staging cost £6,000. We did an open house, offers over 600,000. So we dropped the price 50 grand. We achieved a sale at 675,000. So 25 grand above the original asking. Same house, just staged with a better marketing. And lo and behold, there were people competing over the property when for a whole year that had the same opportunity to buy it, um, but didn't. So there's a lot more to it than sticking the house on the right move. That's so interesting. And it, it just highlights... Uh, human perception mm-hmm. and how easy it is to change our minds yeah and how an empty property i can't believe it was sat, he let it sat, sit for that long but 
you know, an empty property, you stage it suddenly, you make it more like a home, you change the price, even though maybe some of them had seen it on for 650 and that's it. There's people queuing up and they're bidding. It's, I suppose it's framing, isn't it? It's, it's like, it's, I suppose it's, it's almost stoicism. It's how you frame something. Yeah. It's not good. It's not bad. It's whatever it is. And you framed it as, well, look, look what it looks like with the furniture yeah. and actually look what it's like on a more competitive price, mm-hmm. which then exceeded it. So I think, you know, it's, there's, there's so much there about humans and humanity and how that like affects us and changes us. And speaking of perception, estate agents back in the day was either really old man in a suit, yeah. really young Essex boy in a pink shirt and a suit, right? This is, this is, the, this is the two, right? Yeah. Your team are, are neither. What, how important is appearance? And how, when I mean appearance, I mean the clothes someone wears, the watch, the car. We both know how shallow society is and we both know it doesn't take much yeah. for people to change their perception of you how important is appearance for you in your company culture when you're speaking to agents and training them and working with them um within within luxury property partners specifically extremely important you know when you're going around to you know a million pound plus property and you're commanding a two and a half percent fee when the previous agent was maybe charging 0.5 percent you've really got to make an impression and that is how you look that's you know the state of your car when you arrive it's on, you know, are you on time? Are you early? Are you late? All of these different things. But I think how important is it? Like it is far more important than most people imagine in life and in business in general. Um, I mean, I've got some, I don't want to say controversial, but like, I think when you're in good shape, yeah. you are going to get taken so much more seriously. 100%. More people are going to want to do business with you than if you are overweight and don't look after your body. I think some people will disagree with that, but if I've got two people and I've got a choice of doing business with one of them, you know, assuming same skill set, same experience, I want to work with a person that's in shape because to me, it tells me a lot about their character traits. It tells me that they're they're disciplined, they look after themselves, and how you do one thing is how you do everything. So, you know, I take great pride in my appearance. I get my hair cut sometimes twice a week. I go to the gym. You're I, a celebrity, I, I wear nice clothes, but. <laughs> But that's also because I know, you know, I've, you know, it's, you are your brand. Everyone, whether even people think personal brand is just social media. Personal brand is online and offline. It's you. It's you. And when you go to a networking event and you're in your tracksuit bottoms and your dirty shoes and, you know, your beard's overgrown, you're not going to get taken as seriously than, you know, if you go in a, you know, nice, well-fitted clothes, well-groomed, looking after yourself. Um, so... Hopefully that's a wake-up call for a lot of people to kind of be a bit more vain. Like, there is nothing wrong with being vain and caring about how you look. I 100% agree with you, and I don't think it's controversial at all. I think it's just, it's also science. It's evolution. It's a harsh truth, maybe. I think it is. I mean, look, when you look at, let's call it mating partners, to be really evolutional here, you're looking for someone in good shape because they have good genes. Simple as that, and that's what you want for your kids. So it's it's hardwired in us. Yeah, no, society changes our views and has a real strong impact on our views. But generally speaking, we are hardwired from evolution to see fitness, to see a six-pack, to see someone taking care of themselves, good skin, good whatever, as a higher status. We, we just are. Now, yeah, of course, there's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg dresses like a high school kid and he, when you're being, you know, you're yeah, well, you can do what you want, right? But he has, like, credibility. People are going to take yes. him seriously. But yeah. That's because his personal brand is beyond him now. It's it's, it's his whole being. And, and But for most people, I 100% agree with you. If you're in better shape, you're going to be taken seriously. It says something about your personality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think how you... 
how you come across is it, it as shallow as it might seem and as vain as it might seem it's the first impression like we can't change the fact that we have eyes and the first thing we usually do when we meet someone is we see them yeah we don't necessarily we hope we don't smell them first or we hope we don't touch them first but the first thing is we see them and so i think that is a really good point and a potentially a wake-up call for people I, I agree with you use the example of property right we've just spoken about this so when you you know you're refurbishing or you know advertising a property whether it's a rent to rent or whether it's service accommodation whether it's uh, an investment property trying to find a tenant for people spend all of this effort making the property look incredibly attractive but then they won't do the same thing for themselves so you can see why you do it for a property because you're going to attract better tenants better marketing attract more opportunity you're going to command a premium price why not do the same for yourself dress a little bit better you know have your hair cut once a week at least or twice a week at the bare minimum uh, every two weeks at the bare minimum and yeah so i i agree i think it it can change your business it, well i mean i think it can change your bottom line and if that's not enough of a wake-up call, then I think we also look at the other half of it, which is health. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of being? What's the point of being an actual fat cat? You know, the traditional kind of saying. Like, wh- why do you? If you got all this money, you want to be healthy to enjoy it, and for your kids, for your family, for your friends, like you don't want to be in bad shape. I think also when you're in good shape, you have more confidence. Yeah. You you come across better within yourself, which means people take you more seriously, and it works. And like you said, if you're in a luxury, in an expensive, in a high end market mm-hmm. it matters even more um i think there's certain industries where sometimes it does it like if you're a builder but you know i noticed when builders like yesterday came over and he had like versace shoes on and i was like they are very clean yeah and i was like are you do you actually work you know sometimes sometimes it like changes depending on the sector mm-hmm. but for property for business and actually even when you're on video it's important because say if you're someone who doesn't do networking be on video all the time people need to take you seriously and you mentioned fitness earlier. And in the lift, we were speaking about your, your fitness, your CrossFit, you're chucking weights around, doing 100 reps with you know 200 kg on your back. This mad nurse that you do, apart from just looking good, yeah. are there other reasons that you do it? Does it do something for you mentally as well? Um, I mean, yeah, it goes without saying that I think if you want to be just happier in life, you will be happier if you're working out consistently and you're in good shape. But yeah. There's there's two sides to it. There's the, you know, you want to live a long life. You want to live a life absent of health, uh, absence of health, absent of illness um, mm-hmm. and abundance of, of health. Because, you know, I don't want to be that guy at 50 years old is walking with a limp, um, coughing and, you know, in the doctors every two weeks with this problem, that problem. You know, I want to be 50 years old running marathons and you know, being able to do amazing things with my family and, and travel the world, not even when I'm 50, like going into 70, 80 years old. To me, there's nothing more inspiring than some of these 80-year-olds you see that are still active and, and mobile. So um, health plays a huge part of my life, but it always has done. But one thing that became very apparent to me maybe um, three or four years ago was... I started hanging around with a lot of entrepreneurs, not so much in the property space, but I mean like online businesses, that these guys were operating on a level that I couldn't comprehend at the time. You know, 20 years old, 21, 22 years old, with businesses that would do hundreds of thousands per month in like revenue and, you know, were very switched on 
entrepreneurs that, and I'm still friends with a lot of them to this day that are just on incredible trajectories. One pattern became very apparent to me is they were just obsessed over how they can optimize their health, their routines, their sleep to maximize their productivity and efficiency throughout the day. Um, so things like obviously sleep, and that's not just, you know, getting the eight hours, that's making sure that, you know, the room that you're sleeping is in optimal temperature, that you're not eating X amount of hours before you go to bed. It's making sure that, you know, you've not got blue light or your phone in your room or these other things and the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, I've, I wear one of these aura rings every night. I have done for the last four years. And like one of the biggest things that moves a needle in like my ability to focus and be productive is just dialing in my sleep. Um, and yeah, that was one thing that became apparent to me. I was like, okay, well, success leaves clues. I need to start doing that. And it's all about just for focus and efficiency. Um, so rarely, I, I drink alcohol. I rarely drink alcohol. I've drank it probably um, four or five weeks at this point because um, I'm for a period of intense focus where I've got a lot on my plate and I want to build. Um, sleep, you know, wake up same time every morning, go to bed same time every night religiously. And yeah, so health for me is a very like holistic mm-hmm. thing where it's so, like, how can I increase my performance? Yeah, I love that. And I think it's, you know, because you mentioned a few things that you do, like the ordering, you know, looking at your sleep, the optimal temperature. I think there's so many things that are kind of advertised on social media that are hacks, that are take this green juice and you'll be a genius. And it's mm-hmm. people get confused between correlational and causal. I could drink the green juice, but I could be a, a great worker anyway. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, people just wanting bulletproof coffee or wanting something to just make me healthy and I think people miss out on the brilliant basics yeah. things like sleep things like are you getting enough air turn your phone off while you're working turn your phone off while you're yeah. yeah literally the basics you know get some movement in you eat fruit eat vegetables mm-hmm. oh but it has sugar. you know science and things like this we can argue about for years but there are just some real core basics that I think society needs to do more of before it says let me get the 1% extra it's like people want 1% but you're at 2% Get yourself to 50, and then we can talk about these kind of incremental increases. And speaking of health, and I think there's, I'm sure there's data to support this, our lifespans are increasing, mm-hmm. but our health spans are not so much. Yeah. Uh, and I realized one of my biggest fears, because uh, my wife always says, oh, you're nearly 30 now. I'm like, shut up. I'm, 30. Um, I'm like, no, I look really young. Yeah. And I was like, why do I say that? And I always... I just, I, I'd always asked myself this question, what's your biggest fear? And I said, well, it's not only death, because once you're dead, I think I'm gone, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And I realized my biggest fear is what you said there about being 50 and being like that, about not having a health span that is going to support me when I have decisions every single day now in my 20s that I can make that will impact that, save for anything that's out of my control. What is your biggest fear? In life, not health, wherever. Mm, it um, is. We're going there. I don't want to go with the whole cliche, like not fulfilling my potential. Um, that is obviously like one. I think my personality type, the way I'm driven, is just I want to. I just want to see. I just want to explore the limits of what I'm capable of, and um, yeah, definitely just living a life that's not fulfilling. And for me, a, a fulfilling life is. A life where you've done and achieved hard things. You've raised an incredible family. You've looked after your family. You, you know, live a life of health and high energy and purpose. Um, so, yeah. But other than that, I don't know. It's, 
it's a question I need to ponder on. Well, good. I'm glad I've given you some food for thought. And on that topic of fulfillment, mm-hmm. what you mentioned there was really interesting because it wasn't really money. Money's a part of it. Money is, is maybe a measure. But to you, how do you balance, you know, wanting to make more money, yeah. the fact that money can be, I don't want to say evil, but money brings its own challenges. Right? I know the people who, who use it can be. Yeah. Money brings its own challenges. And, you know, your description of fulfillment didn't really include money there. So how do you balance that wanting money, aiming for money, striving it, teaching it, but then being content with what you have and the other soft stuff? Um, well, like in this, like, I, I love just that like you play in the sport of business. Most competitive, um, enduring sport that exists. And money is the scoreboard um, yes, when it comes to... To business and so you know i have people that are maybe you know not entrepreneurs i don't use the word civilians being, like <laughs> being being facetious like being facetious they'll say to me uh, you know um you know you're so obsessed with money and i'm like well i'm just obsessed with growing a business because that's the game i love to play and money is the scoreboard and um at the end of the day beyond a certain level of wealth the utility of money just like becomes almost worthless like there's not much more money that's going to make you any happier or once you've got certain needs covered, albeit yes, when you're starting out, like I actually believe making 10 to 20,000 pound a month is optimal for happiness because then you haven't got huge responsibility of massive team and loads of working parts, but on 10 to 20,000 pounds a month profit, you can live in a good life. You can travel to nice places. You can drive a decent car. You can live in a nice place. Beyond that, it's just all about playing the game. Um, which you know can, is extremely rewarding, but it does come with a lot of pain, frustration, and frustration and stress. So, yeah. I had a feeling you'd say that it's about the game because I think a lot of high performers who have a level of philosophy, should we call it, a philosophy of life, mm-hmm. who maybe understand the purpose of money mm-hmm. a bit more, they have that answer, which is yeah. There's a certain point in utility, but it, I love how you said that scoreboard. Mm-hmm. I've never I've never heard that before. I'm going to use that and quote you because. Oh, I, don't think, I don't think that's my original... Well, you've, you've made it yours now. We'll roll with it. I just love that because it is a scoreboard. Yeah. And you don't need to be on that scoreboard. I don't need to compete with you. You don't need to compete with me. If you want to, we will. Sure, cool, let's do it. Mm-hmm. But we don't need to. And you're right. It's a way of measuring success. Mm-hmm. If your net profit is X and mine is X minus 10, then I'm 10 behind you. Yeah. And I could be cool with that or I could hate you for it or I could be competitive against you mm-hmm. for it. So I really like the way you put that. That's... It's a nice comparison and it allows you to have the fulfillment you want mm-hmm. whilst also seeing money as the score. Where some people who say, I, I want money because money is amazing and I love money. It's like, I don't think it's going to last. I think it's a bit shallow, maybe ego driven, maybe driven by their upbringing. But I also think that it's just, it, it's not going to allow them to have the fulfillment that you mentioned. I think that's a learning experience as well, though. I definitely think... A lot of people, including myself, are guilty of that. You know, you chase mm-hmm. money because you want the nice car, the nice things, and you do the nice car and have the nice things, and you realise actually the the chase is almost better. The journey is better than the, the destination. And like, don't get me wrong, like, I remember buying my dream car and it was like, best feeling in the world. What was your dream car? It was a Lamborghini. Um, it was a Hurricane Performante that I bought a few years back. And like, the first week you're driving it every single night, and then it got to the point where, like, six months in, 
I was like, I was complaining about having to drive it. I was like, oh, it's too uncomfortable. I don't want to drive it. Yeah, the Perth Mando seats is not a vibe. No, it's not like when you're when you're tall and a bit wide as well. It's really not a comfortable car to be in. But, but yeah, I mean, but just in in general as well. Like, I think those sort of things. Like, I'm, I'm like showing you this place today that I live in. I'm so so lucky and grateful mm. to live in a property here over the view that people travel from all around the world to kind of see <laughs> yeah. you know, Big Ben behind me the London Eye but since you like been here for like almost three years you get desensitized to it and going through that process for me was definitely a big learning experience that the things are cool but ultimately I just love playing the game and that's my one and only true love yeah I, I like that and I think it's it's refreshing to hear you talk about that because, you know, I speak to people, interview people who are maybe still on that journey. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to kind of, we're all on, still on the journey or a journey, but it's nice to kind of hear that there is a balance between the two of them and it, it makes sense. You know what I mean? And, and I agree with you on that fulfillment part. Like That's my kind of answer to fulfillment and money is the vehicle that allows that some of that to happen. And I was speaking to, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Steve Hamilton and we both know. Mm-hmm. And he kind of said, when you reach, when you make a certain amount of money, and my friend Tunde said as well, you from that point onwards you kind of said you almost have a rebirth of who you are mm. because you're not worrying about money yeah. and i thought of that earlier i was driving into london i thought okay congestion charge whatever if there's some parking whatever fuel it didn't even it was like whatever yeah. i'm here to see you we're gonna do like whereas say three years ago i would have said oh where's that coming from was it and the fact that you know same with mortgage with bills it's like send the money is done mm-hmm. and there's no there's no thinking about that stuff, which means that you can live freely and live as who you are doing what you're doing without the worry of, shit, where's that coming from? Did you have a moment where there was like that switch or rebirth as some people describe it? Um, I've always had, I think, a unique attitude towards money. Maybe I've always, this might be an upbringing thing or you know, doing a lot of self-development early on that I knew money was always kind of abundant and never, although, you know, it was never a hundred percent abundance mindset. And I think the second part of what you just mentioned there, there absolutely is a point where, you know, your main kind of needs are cared for. But when you learn the game of business, you learn these high value skills, sales, marketing, you know, how to build products that you can sell, you know, how to generate capital your, def- your mindset definitely changes towards money. So I made a joke to you kind of upstairs when I was showing you around, like the great thing about money is that you can always make more and it's always abundant. And so I said, obviously, like living here, for example, is a massive premium. And, you know, sometimes when I'm away for long periods of time and I'm still paying rent, it's like, I feel like I'm wasting money. But at the same time, I just know that with money, you can always make more. Yeah. And for those people that haven't learned those skills yet are in a position where they're trading their time for money because that is the value that they're providing to the marketplace it's hard for you to think like that because the only way for you to generate more money is to just keep working longer hours whereas i know if i need to find you know fifty thousand pounds in the next month or whatever it's like right what can i sell how can i raise capital how can i you know what business or these kind of things what skills can i use to kind of generate that capital it does allow you to then make more um you know, powerful decisions around money. A great example is myself and um, Alfred, who both know prominent guy in the property space. You know, Alfred um, is very vocal about how he will just constantly, like, no questions asked, empty his bank account investing in himself and education. 
And I've, I've definitely had a similar mentality before, but that's just because we know that the only thing stopping us from generating more capital is, is skill and paying down that, that ignorance tax um, that Alex Mosey calls it. So yeah, I think when you can learn those skills, yeah, you definitely have more of an abundance mindset. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good way of putting it. I didn't even think about that because yeah, what you said, if we need 50 grand, you and I both know how to get it. Yeah. We'll get off here and we'll raise it, we'll, we'll earn it in whatever time, right? It, so that's really that's a really good way of looking at it. I like that. The, the skills and the mindset shift to know that if I want something and it's out of budget, I can go make that. Or if I want something or if I've had to pay for something unexpectedly going out of budget, I can make that, I can raise that. And that's, yeah, I really like that. I think the, the, the best example of that is when... You're an entrepreneur and you, you maybe have your first business and you finally get that proof of concept where you make your first sale. The first thing you do is you go onto the calculator app on your iPhone and you think, well, if I can just do <laughs> X amount and I can charge it, so I can make that amount of money. But then that is, you know, true. Sometimes you get a bit carried away with the math. But, you know, when you do know how to sell things and generate capital, you think, right, I need to find 50 grand. Right, what can I sell? Um, or, you know, who can I add value to to make... Yeah. What problems can I solve? And you mentioned earlier your network. Now, through my stalking, sorry, research, I noticed some people that you know. Now, Mike Thurston was at your Dubai Mastermind. Uh, if people don't know him, he's a very big, muscly guy with a golden tan. Yeah. Uh, and he does. he's an entrepreneur, he's a business owner, he's very well-known in the fitness space, yeah. one of the most well-known. I think I saw you with Iman Guds. He's super young, like 21, 22? He's 22 or 23 right now. And he has a seven-figure business? Eight-figure business. Eight-figure. I don't even know how to... When I, for context, when I saw him in Dubai, um, I was coincidentally staying very uh, very close to where he now lives on the palm. And I sent him a message, oh, like, come say hi, come swing through. Pulls up in this blacked-out Rolls-Royce Phantom. I'm like, how much do you pay for this? He's like... Well, there's because of import tax in Dubai, $850,000. I was like, okay, finance? No, cash. I was like, okay. Um, but he, so he is an example of, referring back to my, what I spoke previously with health, I, I first met him um, four years ago. Um, and he introduced me to a lot of people that I know now, kind of network. But he was one of the examples of people that was just, you know, obsessive over his health and routines and his protocols, introduced me to... Billy Harris, who was in like a, still a great friend of mine, but I employed or worked with as kind of a health and performance coach. Like, I think I invested like £10,000 for him to kind of 12 weeks of coaching to kind of just come in and completely, you know, make sure I was operating at maximum efficiency. And those are things that I've learned now that I've used for the next last four years and we use for decades to come. Um, and he's worked with other nine figure entrepreneurs, eight figure entrepreneurs. And like I said, it's just a consistent pattern. So, and how. How do you, because people watching this are going to watch you, they're going to, if they know them, they're going to see them or they're going to go find them. They're going to look at their YouTube followers. They're going to look at their profiles. How on earth do you get a network like that? Because people watching are going to just think, well, I don't see uh, Mike Thurston at my local gym or in my yeah. networking event. So how, I suppose, how did you do it? How can people get into networks like that? Um, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for, like the people I have around me. I've always made a conscious effort that I don't want to be sat at the dinner table with my friends complaining about the weather. I'd rather be talking about you know, growth and self-improvement and sharing best practice and sharing wisdom. The 
things I've learned is one, you know, you have to become more valuable as a person because like it or not, all relationships are transactional in one way or another. You know, your funny friend, you hang out with him because he makes you laugh. Um, your other friends that give you great advice, you hang out with them because you give you great advice. Um, that value exchange is in many different forms. Um, and successful people want to hang around with successful people. They want to share wisdom. They want to share best practice. They don't want to sit and complain about the weather and the local football team and all of these different things. You know, you know don't get me wrong. The conversation isn't always just business. But um, so that's that's the first thing is just obviously focus on yourself and naturally you'll attract these people. The second thing is throw yourself into environments where you are going to meet these people. So um, sometimes that means paying to be in a room, whether it's joining a mastermind, going to a networking event, um, private members clubs, private members clubs, that kind of thing. Um, and then again, sometimes living in a city, you know, I pay a premium to live where I live in terms of rent, travel, food, everything. But I know that the most successful people, like London is a hub for a lot of successful people. And my closest guy group of friends, you know, they are all multi seven, eight figure business owners. And I feel like the small fish in, in my friendship group, but that's how I want to feel. Um, so yeah, if you live in Blackpool, there are going to be some successful people in Blackpool you can network with, but it's going to be a lot more difficult than you live in London or, or Manchester or those kind of things. And the other thing is just build a personal brand. You know, people need to know who you are. So, you know, when I meet someone like, um, and all it takes is meeting one good person, right? So yeah. I met, I was introduced to Eman by somebody else. I then worked with Eman actually with his agency. I was a client of his advertising agency for um, for some time. He invited me, you know, down to his house where I met a few other people, and then just through that the network grows. So like Mike Thurston, for an example, you know, Mike's a a great guy. I met him through a guy called Adrian, who I met through um, a friend called Billy, who I met through Eman. Um, but then also you meet these people, you know, you connect with them on social media and then that relationship gets nurtured on social media because they can see, oh, I don't know, this guy's obviously, you know, does well for himself, shares a lot of the same values as yeah. me, goes to the gym, does cool things. We know a lot of the same people and then the relationships naturally flourish. So, yeah, I think it's a skill, but I also think it's just putting yourself in kind of the right environments. Yeah, I agree. I think people have to maybe become uncomfortable yeah. leaving their environment, leaving home, going to places they've never been, speaking to people they've never spoken to, mm-hmm. being more open to conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, when we when I was driving in here, I could see the cars in the garage yeah. and I love cars. So I was like, okay, nice. And that in itself says the kind of people that live here. You need to earn a certain amount of income to have those cars. You need to be doing something. So, you know, I don't know, if someone's into cars, why don't they go to supercar meets? You yeah. don't necessarily need a supercar to go there because people who own them are going to have more than likely a successful business. They might be employed, mm-hmm. but for certain cars and money, you're going to need sort of your own income to get them. So it, it makes sense. Change your environment, get up and change your environment. So as we kind of draw towards the end of the podcast, yeah. you mentioned a master plan. Don't tell me anything that's not, you know, mm-hmm. without an press embargo on it. But what is, how old are you? 26. So, I mean, what are your plans for the next, I don't know, four or five years? Give us a, you know, where are we going to see Tyler in the next four or five years? Um, well, I'd like to try and be as transparent as I can be. Um, for the first time in my life, kind of this last year or two, I definitely feel I'm at a point where the businesses I have now and the game that I'm playing is the game that I want to play for a very long period of time. 
not a lot of people have that privilege. You know, they're still figuring out figuring out what they want to do. Um, so I'm kind of 26 now. I've got a, well, was a 10-year plan. Now probably a nine-year plan until I'm 35. Um, and with the agency business, um, very simply, that is a business I want to build into something big with um, thousands, if not thousands, of agents working under the brand um, nationally and internationally. And just because... I think true wealth is realized when you sell a business like that's the end of the day that's where true wealth comes from and um, whether i'll sell the business or not i don't know but you know building equity in a valuable business and with that the impact that i can have on people you know having agents working successfully earning kind of great incomes using the the training tools and systems that we can provide the um, investment and development company um I don't want to just be doing developments. I think they do come with a lot of risk. Um, I do want to, well, we are in the process of doing more investment stuff, acquiring investment property, not so much buy-to-lets, but, you know, bigger blocks, if you want to call it. Um, and I want to start operating, I think, more like a like an equity fund, like a private equity fund or an investment fund. Um, and that is all about access to capital. And so in the short term, raising from kind of everyday investors, high net worths, etc., with, you know, the long term view that at some point I've had to prove myself as an operator and investor with a track record for many years of, you know, delivering great returns, then could be able to go to the bigger institutions and start knocking on their door, asking for funding lines in the hundreds of millions or, or billions, because like... Property is an interesting thing. And I think this is something we should discuss if we do a, a roundtable. Um, oh, we, we need to, you've said it now on camera, so it's in writing. Like a, a roundtable with a few people because there's a lot of interesting viewpoints on this. I think property is a great way to kind of go from not so much zero to one, but to build good wealth. But I think to build a significant amount of wealth in a short period of time, I think that's where actually it becomes very difficult. Real estate is a very long-term game. It's a very scalable game. But think if you look at a lot of the billionaires in real estate compared to you know a lot of the billionaires in real estate they're not in their 20s or 30s whereas you look at tech you look at finance you look at other businesses um then you know there's not still not a huge amount of billionaires in their 20s but the age profile is much younger and so the billionaires that have accumulated a significant sum of wealth from real estate they've played a very long game but also they've had to raise a lot of capital um you know hundreds of billions to be able to get to that point so it is property is highly lucrative um but i think for me to go for if i want to make you know 100 million the vehicle of doing that is going to be from building and selling a business um the investment development stuff you know i'm going to hopefully and the goal is to acquire a significant sum of wealth doing that but that is a longer term game um so but then you look at grant cardone and what he's done with cardone capital in the last five, six, seven years, um, whether he's a billionaire or not, I'm sure that's up for discussion, but there's no doubt that he's flying his family around in a Gulfstream G650 and has acquired $5.5 billion of real estate. So, um, yeah, who knows? Well, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the Test Talks podcast. I think we've talked about quite a few different topics, which which for me anyways is interesting and interesting to hear your views on money and the philosophy of money and business and and luxury property partners is definitely something that I'm going to keep an eye on because mm. you're in such a market that 
it is ready for domination. It's it literally is. It's a, like the River Thames behind us. It's a, it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's um. That's the old hat stuff, and this is the Maldives. This is the blue the blue ocean stuff. So I'm really looking forward to following you and what you do. And for people who want to get in touch with you, your Instagram, your email, your website, everything will be below so they can get in touch with you. And, and Tyler, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.